Hi, I'm Lewis, and welcome to Searching For It. Before we begin today, I just want to say a massive thank you to my most recent donor on Patreon, who would rather stay anonymous, but I do just want to say thank you ever so much. It really is hugely appreciated. And the same, of course, goes for my other donors as well. You really do keep helping the show going. And for those of you listeners who would also like to contribute to the development of the show, you can head to www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. But moving on with the show, we're actually going to be looking at donations of quite a different kind today and towards people who probably are quite a bit more in need of our support than this podcast. Now, according to the World Bank, over 700 million people, to give an idea of scale, that's more than 10 times the entire population of the UK, are estimated to live on less than $1.90 a day. Obviously, this isn't nearly enough to cover a human being's basic needs, and there's actually recent research from the World Health Organization who show that on average, a child dies every five seconds from mostly preventable causes. And even of those who do survive, many of them are unable to access really important things like good schools, proper healthcare and safe drinking water. When people talk about absolute poverty, you'll often hear them use this word avoidable. They'll say avoidable deaths and avoidable suffering, reason being that a lot of the time it doesn't have to be this way. The kind of deaths and suffering that arise from absolute poverty could often have been avoided should they have had more resources. You know, deaths from malnutrition wouldn't be the case if they'd had enough food. Deaths from malaria might not have happened if they'd had access to bed net that would have prevented mosquitoes giving them malaria in the first place. And equally, there are also many cases of blindness caused by a disease called trachoma in sub-Saharan Africa that could have been prevented through fairly cheap surgery. But in spite of this, we in the developed world continue to spend money on luxuries that we don't need. Take this for example. In 2009, Americans gave $8.9 billion to international aid. Now, you'll think this sounds pretty good on the surface, but when you consider that that's $8.9 billion, but they spent $380 billion on tobacco products in that year, over 40 times the amount that they spent on international aid, it doesn't sound quite so impressive anymore. It's easy to forget or to stick your head in the sand and ignore, but I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that we're living in a global catastrophe with immense suffering and millions of deaths every year that could have been avoided. Now, I don't want to overplay the easiness of combating global poverty, because obviously we can't just donate a bit of money and expect world poverty to be solved. If we could, I'm sure that we would have done that already. There's a TED talk out there by a guy called Andrew Mwenda. It's a really interesting talk, actually. And he points out that we've spent $600 billion on poverty relief between 1960 and 2003. But hey, guess what? There are almost a billion people living in absolute poverty today. But this isn't a reason to sit back and do nothing and accept the suffering and deaths that arise from global poverty as just a fact of life. I think the point here is more that we have to be more careful and more deliberate in how we try to tackle global poverty. There are certain organisations out there, for example, who have really strong independent research that shows that donating money here will make a very positive impact on the lives of some of the least fortunate. I don't normally introduce episodes in this podcast with a call to give money to charity, but the reason that I'm going to spend the next two episodes talking about this is that 
I think there seem to be good reasons to think that, on the one hand, the appalling extent of suffering in the world, combined with, on the other hand, the opportunity that many of us have in wealthy countries to do something to alleviate this suffering, generate really strong reasons to help. In this episode today, we're going to look at the first part of the question, which is, why should we direct our efforts and perhaps even make it our life's commitment to ensure the happiness of those around us? And in the next episode, we'll go into the practicalities of this. We'll look into what these kinds of effective measures of poverty relief might look like, and then more generally, what the most effective ways of doing good with our lives might be. So why should we do good? And then next month, how do we do good? But to begin with today's question, I think there are two ways of thinking about why we should devote our lives to doing good. Firstly, you can look at this from a moral point of view. Now, it seems clear that we have moral reasons to help. By moral, I mean something like being a good person, and under most definitions of good, it would be a very good thing if we were to help reduce this suffering. But also, given that this podcast isn't just a podcast about ethics, it also looks at how we can make the best of our own lives, I think there might also be really good reasons to think that devoting our lives to the well-being of others could actually be a very effective way of living a satisfying and meaningful life. So the point here being that when we say we should do our bit to help others, Whether you interpret the word should as talking about moral reasons to help, or as talking about self-interested reasons and living a good life, we might have very good reasons to think that we should be focusing our attention on the betterment of humankind. I'll come on to talk about why pledging our lives to the interests of others might even be in our own interests a bit later on in this episode. But first, to begin with the moral demands that we might have to do our bit in alleviating global poverty, the sense in which kind of being a good person necessarily involves doing something about this. I want to begin by looking at one of my favourite thought experiments in philosophy. So this one, they call it the drowning child example, which, as a warning, is definitely provocative to the reader or the listener, but it's also really thought-provoking. It comes from an Australian moral philosopher called Peter Singer. So, Singer invites us to imagine that we're walking past a pond on our way to delivering a lecture, as you do. But as you're walking past the pond, you take a closer look and you see that there's a child drowning. In this example, you know that if you dive in to save the child, you'll be able to rescue him. But you also know that he'll certainly die if he doesn't get your help. But it's not that simple. Before you dive in, you remember that you're wearing your brand new suit that you were hoping to wear to your lecture. Now let's say that it's a Hugo Boss suit that costs £3,000 or $3,500 and it'll certainly be ruined beyond repair if you were to jump in. Now, of course, under any plausible system of ethics, you should jump in here. In fact, you'd probably want to say that it would be really wrong of you not to jump in. Sure, nobody wants to ruin their suit, but when the other side of the trade-off is literally a life, it would be very wrong indeed to prioritise your suit. Now, up to this point, what you should do seems pretty clear. But this is where the thought experiment becomes provocative. Singer points out that, in fact, we are in this position, in the position of the lecturer by the pond, every single day. The reason for this is, and this is why the cost of the suit actually becomes important, £3,000 also happens to be the amount of money that the best research shows would be, on average, enough to save a single life through the most cost-effective charities. So to be specific, we'll talk about this in a bit more detail later on and in the next episode. 
There's an independent charity evaluator called GiveWell. They publish research. You can go onto their website and read their calculations and see just how they arrived at these figures that show that the Against Malaria Foundation, a charity operating in sub-Saharan Africa, are able to save a life by giving out bed nets in Africa to prevent mosquitoes passing on malaria for an average cost of £3,000 per life saved. So just as the lecturer in the example had what you might call a moral obligation, a moral demand upon him, it's something that he had to do in order to be a good person, to dive in and save the child, even if it would involve sacrificing his £3,000 suit. If he has that moral obligation, Singer wants to argue that we ourselves must equally have a moral obligation to donate to charity, even if it means not spending the money on ourselves. So the implication here is that every time we spend £3,000 on whatever it is, whether it's buying a nicer car, going on a fancy holiday, or whatever other non-essential item we spend our money on, that's £3,000 that we could have spent on saving a life. And Singer argues, if we agree, as I say, it's very wrong for the lecturer to ignore the child for the sake of his suit, it's equally wrong to ignore the incredible opportunities that we have to save lives through a simple donation. Now, of course, as I said, this is a very provocative argument. I think Singer probably upset a lot of people by making this argument, because it puts many of us on the same moral level as the man who walks by and lets the child drown. And it certainly seems counterintuitive to accept that we have some kind of moral obligation, that we, morally speaking, really, really should be giving our hard-earned money to charity. I mean, the thought is, you know, it's my money, it's my choice to do what I want with it, right? I earned it. The point of view that Singer's trying to put across would involve radically reimagining our whole conception of charity. If Singer's right, charity isn't just something we do as and when we want to anymore, and when we fancy doing a good deed. No, according to Singer, it's not something that we should at all be commended for, be praised for. Instead, charity becomes something that we really have to do if we want to meet the minimum standards of being a decent person. And like walking past and ignoring dying people on the sidewalk, it's something that's very wrong for us to avoid doing. This whole debate in ethics, that the debate that asks to what extent are we morally obligated to give money to effective charities, is something I'm personally really interested in, and my master's dissertation was actually on this topic, so it would be too easy for me to get sidetracked in the nitty-gritty kind of philosophy arguments here, but I don't think that's really the point of this episode. Instead, the point I want to make is that, as Singer shows, given the low cost of literally saving someone's life, given that it's no more expensive than an Amiga watch or a holiday for two to Hawaii, there are good reasons to think that we have very, very strong moral reasons to take advantage of these opportunities. But to do Singer's argument proper justice, I think it might be useful, particularly to those of you who are hearing Singer's argument here for the first time, and most likely having some questions and concerns about his argument yourself, to go over just a couple of common objections to Singer's argument and his responses. I think one of the most common problems that people find with Singer's argument here is that what looks like an analogy between saving the drowning child and giving our money to charity isn't really an analogy at all. An intuition that a lot of people have is that, of course, we simply have to save the drowning child because he's right there but we don't have the same kind of obligation to statistical, non-identifiable people on the other side of the world, people we'll never meet or see, because their suffering is nothing to do with us. The drowning pond boy, he's drowning right in front of us, and 
you might want to say that his close proximity to us, the fact he's so close, is what generates this moral obligation to save him. And this close proximity is lacking in the case of African people dying of malaria. We don't have the same obligation because they're nothing to do with us. For me, however, and certainly for Singer too, what's going on here with this objection is a muddling together of two very different facts. They're psychological facts and moral facts. So to unpack this a bit, sure, Singer would be happy to admit that technically there's a psychological difference between the drowning child case and giving money to effective charities. You know, insofar as the child drowning before our very eyes definitely conjures up an emotional pull towards him, we're up close and we empathise with the child in a way that we don't with these malaria victims we never heard of. So we have stronger emotional reasons to save the child. We have psychological reasons. But this isn't the same thing as a stronger moral reason to save the child. Whether someone's one metre in front of you or on the other side of the world, their suffering and the value of their life is the same and shouldn't make any difference to the strength of our moral reasons to save them. Under most people's conception of ethics, of what it is to be moral, acting in a morally good way requires being impartial. It requires helping people regardless of their race, their nationality, their gender. Morality doesn't tend to allow for giving someone a higher value to their life rather than someone else. So really, if we have a moral obligation to save the drowning child, the fact that we don't feel the same emotional pull to donate £3,000 to the Against Malaria Foundation doesn't mean that we don't have an equal moral obligation to give to them. We might have stronger emotional, kind of psychological reasons to save the drowning child, but that doesn't mean that it's not, morally speaking, the exact same thing as giving money to effective charities. At this point, I think there are probably going to be some people out there who are happy to say, sure, if I really knew that my £3,000 would save a life, and that without my donation someone would certainly die, well, I'd have to give my money. But this isn't how the world really works. So you might want to say, in real life, charities just aren't that trustworthy, and I can't realistically be sure that my money is going to go towards saving lives, and not to, say, paying the wages of some admin staff or paying for a fancy new desk in their London office. And these kinds of objections aren't unfounded, they have credence. Take the Oxfam scandal in Haiti, for example. You wouldn't want to give your money to charity, thinking your donations were going to be used to pay the wages of staff who hire local underage girls for sex and to pay for the buildings they bring the girls to. That goes to show that one doesn't automatically become trustworthy and saintly just in virtue of working for a charity, and you can't be sure that all charitable work is going to bring about a positive effect. And then even if the charity is trustworthy, we often don't know where exactly our money's going. So I once heard the analogy, though I can't remember where from, that the way charity often works today is like going into a shop giving the shop owner a wad of money and saying, here's what I'll spend, you can give me whatever you like in exchange for my money, because you don't know where your money's actually going. And that's just absurd, we shouldn't be doing things that way. When we buy things in a shop, we want to know exactly what we're getting and for exactly how much. So you might want to ask, why shouldn't this be the case with charity too? Why shouldn't we know exactly where our money's going when we write a cheque to charity? So the point here is that while I do definitely have an obligation to save the drowning child because I know I can dive into that pond and save them, I might not actually have such a strong obligation to give to charity because I don't know that my donation is actually going to save a life. 
But fortunately, we don't live in a world where all charities are black holes and where we don't know where our money's going. I say we don't live in a world where all charities are black holes, because I'm sure an awful lot of them are. But as I touched upon earlier, there are fantastic organisations like GiveWell who perform astonishingly detailed research into where exactly our money goes when we give to some of the most effective charities. And using this research, GiveWell compile a list of recommended charities that you can see on the top charities section of their website that, according to their calculations, will provide the most cost-effective benefits. And with the rigour, the detail of their investigations, I don't think there's much reason to doubt that the donations of around £3,000 to charities like the Against Malaria Foundation really will save lives. And even if you still remain sceptical, even if you look at GiveWell's research and you don't find it robust enough, this to me seems like more of a reason to contribute to making charity evaluators more accurate, rather than just turning your back and abandoning charity and avoidable suffering and deaths altogether. So that argument from Singer is just one argument to the effect that, morally speaking, we really should be doing a heck of a lot more to try and do our bit to stopping global poverty than we currently are doing. Though this does still leave the question open of just how much should we be given to effective charities? I mean, when I heard Singer's argument for the first time, I was stuck in a little bit of a rut for a couple of weeks. I thought, I mean, gosh, how can I spend my life spending money on any kind of luxuries for myself, knowing that every time I do so, I'm taking money away that could have otherwise been spent on saving lives? How could I ever go on nice holidays or treat myself in any shape or form? There are philosophers who, in response to this question, take up positions across the whole range of the spectrum. There are some who say we don't need to give anything at all. There are a whole load of positions in the middle, and then there are some like Peter Singer who say we should give an awful lot. One of the more popular views out there is the fair share argument put forward by a guy called Liam Murphy. He defends the view that we only need to give our fair share to alleviating global poverty. Now what this means in practice is that if we in Western countries, if we were to calculate the whole burden of alleviating global poverty, and we were to split it between each of us, we're only morally required to give our own individual portion. And if other people aren't doing their bit, this doesn't necessarily mean we have to do more. Now according to Peter Singer, this is really interesting, he did some calculations, and he worked out that all this would actually involve is every citizen in every country that's at least as wealthy as Portugal. All they would need to do is just donate $200 each to literally solve global poverty once and for all. So as long as we're doing our fair share, giving our $200, we don't need to do any more, because doing more would involve picking up the slack of others. A singer himself does think we should be doing a lot more than that. The point for singer is that not everyone is doing their bit, so given the opportunity that we therefore have to do good, we really should be giving a lot of money to charity, at least up until the point that giving any more money would involve making really big sacrifices ourselves. Wherever you lie on the spectrum, however much you think that we should be giving to alleviating global poverty, the point of all that I've said up to this point is that maybe giving to charity isn't just an optional add-on to our lifestyle. Maybe if we just want to be minimally decent people, they should form a much greater part of our lives, given the awful extent of suffering in the world on the one hand, and then on the other, the opportunity that we do have to do something about it. If any of you are interested in reading more about our moral obligations to give to charity, reading Singer's essay called Famine, Affluence and Morality is a really good place to start. This is where he first put forward his drowning child argument, to my knowledge. 
I'd also recommend The Life You Can Save, which is a really accessible book by Peter Singer that talks about these kinds of topics. But as I mentioned earlier, this podcast isn't just about ethics. It's not just about how to live the morally best lives, how to be a moral saint. What this podcast is primarily about is finding ways of determining a positive, concrete direction for our lives, for our own lives, something that we can work towards. And for sure, I do think that ethics plays a big part in that, which is why I've talked about it earlier. And I'll do some episodes in the future that talk about different systems of ethics and how they can direct our lives in certain ways. But I do also think that there are good reasons to focus our lives on making the world a better place that actually appeal to our own self-interest, and not just to some abstract ethical theory or some crazy moral argument. So now talking about the kind of self-interested reasons to give to charity, the sense in which doing so can make our own lives meaningful. I'm actually still going to be talking about Peter Singer here, because he's quite possibly my favourite philosopher. And he wrote a brilliant short piece, it's called The Drowning Child in the Expanding Circle, It's only a few pages long, and I'd definitely recommend reading it. And the argument I'm going to put forward now more or less tracks what he wrote in this essay. So Singer begins this line of argument by making a really thought-provoking observation that I think is really relevant to the whole theme of this podcast, actually. Singer points out that, historically, people have always had some ideal, some power greater than themselves to work towards, something that allows them to transcend themselves. So thinking back to different times in history... Most past societies would have had some kind of religion to provide direction to their lives, whether it's Christianity in the last few thousand years in a lot of Western countries, or Islam, or ancient religions of the past. Even in the last hundred years or so, maybe Christianity and religion as a whole hasn't been quite so prevalent, but if you think back to the mid-20th century, people still found their paths to transcendence in other ideologies like communism or liberalism, depending on which side you fell. So whether your purpose was religion, politics, or something else. These kinds of ideals allowed people to be part of something bigger and greater than themselves, and they gave them something higher to work towards. But when you apply this to today, I'm not quite sure what it is that we're supposed to be fighting for. If you're not sick of it quite yet, there's another apt quote from Fight Club, where Tyler Durden points out, We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war. No great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. Now Singer answers this. Singer thinks he knows what the great ideal of the 21st century is. For him it's consumerism. Many of us today are not religious, and even many of those who are religious don't seem to follow through on their religion wholeheartedly and actually follow through on their beliefs. It's as if God has been replaced by goods, by products, by an endless stream of iPhones, Balenciagas and BMWs. And if this sounds a bit abstract, think of what the ideal 21st century adult looks like, what a success story is meant to be. Graduating from university with a good degree, getting a high-flying job in the city, buying a big house with a sports car, raising a family and going on holiday to Disneyland, retiring by 50 and seeing out your days travelling the world and eating out in nice restaurants. But when we paint this picture of the 21st century man, we don't paint into this picture a spiritual success story. We don't paint into the picture a close personal relationship with God, and we don't judge them by their contribution to the state or their fight for freedom or civil rights, not even by their relationship with their local community. When the dominant religion is consumerism, people become their own God. Their own consumption and personal pleasures are all that they have to fight for. There's nothing greater than themselves that they can identify with. 
they have no opportunity to transcend themselves. I mean, today, the thrill of a fast car is, is it. It's the end goal of our existence. To me, the dominant thought, or at least the popular thought today, seems to be that by moving beyond religion, by rejecting these traditional restrictions on things like sex and drugs, and by placing personal pleasure on a pedestal, we're moving closer to truth, closer to enlightenment, and we're making progress. That's what a lot of people seem to think, but to me it doesn't seem clear that this emphasis on self-interest and consumption is making us any happier than we were before. I mean, take mental health for example. It literally seems to be reaching a crisis point right now. Although I'm aware that any data we have on this would be obscured by the fact that mental illnesses might simply not have been picked up on in the past. But even those who are winning the rat race today, the wealthiest among us, they don't seem to be any happier than the rest of us. It's not like many people reach a stage of wealth where they sit back and say, yep, I've done it now, I'm happy. More often than not, they're always striving for more. And then, perhaps as a result of our not having anything greater than ourselves to work towards, Singer points out that the assertion that life is meaningless no longer just comes from nihilist philosophers and absurdists like Camus, who we looked at in the first episode. Now it's literally coming from bored teenagers. It's as if we as a society are reaching a kind of collective existential crisis. But Singer has a solution, and this solution doesn't involve committing what you might remember Camus called philosophical suicide. It doesn't involve crawling back to religion or a political ideology and pretending that it really offers some kind of objective ideal to work towards. No, instead, and this is Singer's main proposal in this paper, he invites us to think about human concern, the kind of things we're concerned about, and to consider the parameters of human concern as a circle, just as uh, W.H. Lecky did before him. So this circle, as I say, is supposed to represent all the different people you care about. At the centre of the circle there'll be yourself, with your family and your loved ones occupying the innermost layer of the circle. And then just outside of them, you'll have your friends. And on the next layer, you might have some people who share some kind of community with you, like members of the same religion, the same nationality, or supporters of the same sports team. And then finally, beyond that, right on the outside, you'll have the rest of humanity, and, well, beyond that, all other conscious beings in the universe. And for most of human history, we've only ever been in a position to be able to make a difference to the people within the inner layers of our circle, I mean, even if you're just going back 300 years ago, you certainly wouldn't be able to donate some money to prevent cases of malaria on the other side of the world. It would have been almost impossible for most people to make a difference in other parts of their own country. Now, even great emperors of the past would have struggled to affect life beyond their borders. It's only in really recent years that, that along with globalisation and the development of loads of different technologies, that we've actually become able to impact the life of people all over the planet. And it's worth bearing in mind that these effects can be good or bad. Sure, we can help people across the world who are suffering from poverty, but if we don't make efforts to curb our CO2 emissions, we'll also be having really bad effects on these people too. But the link here between the opportunities that we have to do good today, that we looked at earlier, and our circle of concern, is that for most of us, our circle of concern hasn't yet caught up with the expansion of our circle of opportunity. So as we saw earlier, these drowning pond boys are likely to be closer to the centre of our circle of concern than, say, malaria victims in sub-Saharan Africa. We have stronger emotional reasons to help them, perhaps due to something like their close proximity to us. But now, as of only very recently, now that we're living in a world where both of these people fall within our circle of opportunity, 
now that we can do great things for both of them, perhaps we should be updating our circle of concern to account for both of them. And this is where we can link back to what we were saying a moment ago about the hollow sense of meaning that's presented to us today in the form of consumerism. As we saw earlier, consumerism places the self at the centre of all things. Everything we do is geared towards consumption and pleasure, and consumerism doesn't give us any kind of opportunity to identify with a sense of meaning greater than ourselves. So Singer's suggestion is that we recalibrate our circle of concern to bring those who are on the outside back into the centre, not just to make this consistent with our circle of opportunity, but also to allow us to find a sense of meaning in the opportunities that we have to make a positive difference to other people. The idea that living an ethical life might really be one of the best things we can do, that it might actually work in our own self-interest, isn't a new idea. We'll look at Aristotle in more detail in a future episode, but he's just one example of an ancient Greek philosopher who brought ethics and self-interest together to show that a life of virtue is the best kind of life we can lead. But what's really interesting and novel about Singer's approach here is that he makes this approach relevant to today's world. In a world where so many people are struggling to find meaning, where we're experiencing a kind of collective existential crisis, and also in a world with so much avoidable suffering, the opportunity that we therefore have to commit ourselves to a global ethic that expands the parameters of the circle of concern to account for these people, to join forces and make a real positive difference in the world, might just provide us with that sense of meaning, that something greater than ourselves, to overcome this existential crisis. If we were to truly expand our collective circle of concern, if we were to reject the over-exaggerated link between self-interest and happiness that consumerism preaches, I'm sure that this would radically alter the world we live in. But at the same time, it'd certainly be very difficult to do so. Living within the grip of consumerism, so many people cite being rich as one of their biggest ambitions, which again feeds into the consumerist religion that places the self at the heart of all concern and places the pursuit of our own personal pleasure as the end point of all that we ever do. But while this isn't based on hard evidence, I do suspect that making a substantial and positive difference to the life of other people is genuinely more fulfilling and more conducive to living a good life than, say, owning a fleet of superyachts. And equally, there are many other aspects of living what we'd often see as a good life that can be reached through altruism. Things like leaving a legacy, finding a sense of purpose to our actions, And even building up our own self-worth can all be reached by altruism, by doing things for other people. And anyone who shares these intuitions with me might agree that devoting at least some part of our lives to making a positive difference to the world might be one of the best things we can do. Now the main thing we've still got to flesh out here is what exactly these kinds of positive differences might be, and how we can go about doing them. I mentioned earlier that GiveWell offer a fantastic resource to discover the most effective charities that aim to alleviate deaths and suffering arising from global poverty, and that's certainly one avenue through which we can be sure to make very real and positive differences to those most in need of our support. But in the next episode, we're going to spend much more time looking at the practicalities of how we can make the greatest possible difference to the world. We'll look at a community called Effective Altruism, who GiveWell are closely connected with actually, and who commit themselves to finding the most effective methods of doing good, both in terms of giving money, but also finding other effective ways of spending our time. So that episode's going to be arriving on the first Monday of October, which will be the 7th of October. And until then, please do subscribe and leave a quick review on your podcast app of choice. It really helps. 
And to keep up with the show, you can also follow Searching For It on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you.